Okay, welcome to the Dungeon Musings Podcast. My name is Kevin Madison, and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, Today, I want to talk a bit about um, just kind of a state of the union uh, for where things are. Uh, At the time of recording, it is July 26th. No, it's July 16th, I think, 2020. So we're right in the heart of the pandemic. We've had a bunch of stuff happening over the last little while. It's been quite quite some time uh, since I have recorded my last podcast. I, I had intended to do more topical stuff, but uh, unfortunately, without uh, driving all that often, I find myself with very little time to actually record these. So I am going to start now with uh, a State of the Union for what we've played the last little while and what I've got planned for uh, coming up. And yeah, that is that. All right. So at the time of recording, uh, we have had a couple of uh, milestones that we have reached in uh, some of our games. Uh, we are past uh, 20 uh, sessions of our quarantine campaign playing uh, the Legacy of the Crystal Shard campaign uh, published in 2013 with the uh, AD&D 2nd Edition rules. Uh, we have also, let's see here, we've also um, exceeded 50 sessions of our Night Below campaign uh, and we've exceeded 30 sessions of our Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea games. So, uh, those are the three main games that I've been running uh, basically since the, the quarantine uh, uh, started. Um, and it's only been in the last couple of months that, well, last month or so, yeah, I, I know that we're over 100 days of quarantine uh, at this point, or at least I'm working from home. Um, we, uh, uh, I've had as the, uh, oh, I guess the other big milestone we've hit is that we've hit 3,000 uh, or exceeded 3,000 subscribers on the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. So that was pretty fucking awesome. Um, and I recorded a, uh, a session, or a session, an episode uh, last weekend or this past weekend when I was talking about some of my favorite products that I use in old school sandbox games. So if uh, um, if you are interested in, in that and you haven't seen it yet, uh, that, that's available on the uh, Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. Um, so the... You know, I guess, like, for one, the the reason that I, I was thinking of the subscribers is because when we uh, when we hit 3,000, we've been seeing, you know, it's, it's the result of uh, ever steady, uh, steadier growth. And I'm starting to see a lot of comments on older videos, too, as I'm, I'm imagining that new subscribers are who have been joining us for certain uh, things have been going back and watching older videos. So I'm seeing a lot of comments on videos that I either I haven't thought about for quite some time or just we didn't have a lot of uh, didn't have a lot of traffic on it uh, the first time around. So that has been really cool because it's got me thinking about some other, uh, it helped me, um, not shake out of, uh, but you know, to be back, getting back in the, in the groove of getting ready to run some other games. Um, partly be, uh, which is good. I mean, for me, partly because we have now, um, so much. We, I've got six charity sessions I need to run between now and the end of the year, so that is good to be getting those going. And the first of those will be uh, this coming weekend, actually tomorrow. So I'll be. Um, I'm pretty excited for that. That's going to be a Savage Worlds one shot for uh, my buddy Arlen, uh, and his uh, the setting he's picked for that has been a um, first century Roman Empire uh, adventure set in uh, Rome. He he or not Rome in uh, Britain. And he had specifically said, look, do whatever you want with it, run whatever you want, use whatever system you want. This is just what I wanted to play. And uh, I asked for a little bit of clarification in terms of whether he wanted horror or intrigue or, you know, muscly pulp kind of action. And we are going with a little bit of all of that stuff. So it'll be, 
Uh, it should be a really fun session. I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to run it. It's been a long time since I've run Savage Worlds in general, and every time I run it, I have... Uh, well, that's not true. No, not every time. The one time I did when I ran it, Theater of the Mind, it didn't track adversaries terribly well. Uh, in person, I, uh, I, I ran... It, that one wasn't a lot of fun just because I, I felt like I didn't have a lot of control over the, the game itself. Um, but every other time I have run it, I've had so much fun. There's just a, something about uh, the way Savage Worlds encourages you to take on um, negative character traits for your character, uh, be it or through the uh, hindrances uh, mechanic. It's just a lot of fun, and, and the swinginess of the dice, where they're, uh, like every dice you roll uh, has the potential for exploding. For you know, you get to if you roll the highest uh, number on that dice, then you get to roll it again and add it to it. Um, it can lead to a lot of swinginess, but you know, I, I think that for one that's part of the fucking fun of that, you know, seeing the crazy results of, of, uh, what enemies, uh, do or what your, uh, your, uh, heroes do is, is a shit ton of fun, uh, as, and, um, and there's also the, uh, there's a narrative meta currency called Benny's that they use in the game that mitigate against sort of the, the real extremes of the swinginess, and you can implement some house rules to, you know, to avoid, uh, like, say, you know, a, uh, uh, an unforeseen exploding dice, uh, damage dice that generates just, you know, an ungodly amount of, uh, of damage on, on a character, um, then uh, there's ways to mitigate to sort of cap the, uh, what the, you know, the net results can be from, from those rolls. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm pretty excited about it. The newest edition of uh, Savage Worlds that we're using is called the Adventure Edition. And to be honest, I was a little... I backed it on Kickstarter, but I was a little leery of whether it was worth a, n- a new edition because it did seem like they had just released a previous edition of it. And uh, at, as a casual you know, observer and not a regular player of, of uh, Savage Worlds or DM of Savage Worlds, I, I kind of felt like it, it might have been a bit of selling the same, but I, I don't feel that any longer. There, there are some fairly substantial changes that were made to some very specific uh, areas, and it's areas that really only shine at play, not necessarily in character creation, uh, and it, that is my running, you know, that's a running theme of my experience with Savage Worlds, where I, you know, my initial reaction uh, to reading it was like, this is just not enough game but then every time I've run it, I'm like, oh, this is, it comes to life at the table. Got it. Uh, so that is just me constantly misjudging the, uh, the real depth with Savage Rules. So I'm hoping that that's going to be our experience again on, uh, on Saturday. Uh, I, I really, not only because of uh, this particular session and because I really want to make sure that Arlen has a fun, uh, you know, a fun charity session with, uh, he was very generous in donating to the Heroes Save Villages campaign. So I really want to make sure it's uh, it's worth the um, he gets his uh, his dollar value out of it, um, but also I um, uh, I'm hoping that this will kindle an interest in in Savage Worlds because the idea of having a multi genre setting that we can kind of go to that the players feel comfortable making their own characters with that'd be kind of cool to have you know something we can go to and say like guys we're gonna because creating characters in Savage Worlds takes almost no time at all. Uh, mechanically at least so having something where we can just throw together characters uh you know and play a game for some of those especially for our four-hour sessions when we uh you know we're down people and we want to run a quick one shot that would be a lot of fun to have that available because uh um i i mean not only that it's um i think it'll be fun to be trying different settings Uh, i also have a crap ton of stuff for savage world so it'd be cool to dip into some of those products and use them as written um 
we, um, you know, uh, reviewing those ones as well too has really uh, some of the older sessions or older games that uh, um, that I have uh, run before. Uh, it, it's it's been an interesting mix of like certain thinking about some of the older games that we were running at the time of the um, quarantine started and where we are now has confirmed a couple, I mean, it's really confirmed some stuff for me that, you know, I, um, there's a certain, there definitely is a style of play uh, that I enjoy um, more overall uh, as an ongoing campaign. Uh, you know, our looking at the the big picture that's come from the two different campaigns we've run so far. We've got, in our Legacy of the Crystal Shard campaign, we've run about 22 or 23 sessions of that, and the characters are all, on average, about 4th or 5th level, depending on whether they're multi-class or not. In our Legacy of the Crystal... Sorry, that's in our Legacy of the Crystal Shard game. In our Night Below campaign, our characters are, on average, about 4th level, uh, even the multi-class characters, though the single-class, 4th or 5th, I can't remember if anyone is 5th yet, but the... Um, that one is already at 54 sessions. So, you know, looking at just sheer number of sessions, that the characters are progressing a great deal slower through the levels uh, in that campaign uh, than they are in Legacy of the Crystal Shard. But the the two games are very different. Like the, the Legacy of the Crystal Shard one is a lot more, a lot closer to what I would traditionally run, where it's a little more story focused. It is uh, definitely sandboxy in the sense that characters can kind of go where they want, but really what, what's happening is that they're going to a place and then they're kind of getting caught up in the events that are happening there and then they throw themselves into it. Um, so there is a degree of sandbox in the sense that you can pick which road you want to take, but once you get to that road, it does sort of, you know, in, envelop your characters in those adventures. And the adventures with that particular campaign, because we had at one point like nine or ten players in it, um, it's I sort of settled down to about six regular players now, uh, but the uh, even with six players, you can run pretty big set piece uh, combat encounters with that game. And I've really been going crazy with that. Like you know, um, the scale of, of fights we've been having in our Ash campaign at times, and um, it's been boy oh boy. Like I, I, I misjudged how much great tactical play that you can get out of. AD&D second. Uh, I had, I mentioned previously in the podcast how, you know, I, I was really enamored of fourth edition uh, back in the day. And I really, I, I think fourth edition does a really, really good job of making for really fun tactical encounters. And shit, I just realized I missed my turn off. <laughs> this is how excited I was to talk about this. Um, but I've been, in particular in that campaign, I have been really trying to incorporate more and more um, tactical, like, set-piece encounters, you know, like fights with... Um, we had a really interesting fight with some spiders on a bridge. We had uh, a great fight with spy with uh, dwarves on this descending staircase. That was really a very, very mobile fight. Uh, we've had, um, you know, some good, like, running zombie fights with uh, people as well, too, trying to break, you know, being pursued by a big group from behind and then trying to break through a, uh, a defensive line in the front. Uh, so... It's been really, you know, uh, I think it's not the same necessarily as what it is for, say, 4th edition D&D or 2nd edition uh, Pathfinder, both of which have very, very clear tactical, you know, uh, applications that um, that you can, uh, or tactical uh, sort of uh, implementations of uh, powers and so forth. But 
it still is very, very tactical. Like the positioning, uh, the use of, um, I don't know. I mean, just like it, it was a really fun use of like a, one of those uh, fun use of space and abilities to try and make for a fun encounter. And that's on both counts, the players and the, uh, uh, the, uh, and me with the NPCs, you know, using good area of effect spells to really a deadly effect that we had in that, uh, staircase encounter, one of our staircase encounters, the guys were fighting some, um, uh, some evil dwarves and the, their evil spellcaster used a combination of, uh, what is it? Choking cloud. Um, and, uh, that's not what the spell's called. I can't remember offhand what it is, but maybe it's choking cloud. <laughs> I don't know. One of the things that creates a, like a, a lasting cloud of, of, uh, poisonous vapors and another one of, um, uh, hypnotic, uh, symbol or something like that. Or anyway, it, um, one of them slow, you know, basically it was uh, two different parts of the staircase and it broke up our heroes' uh, forces. They had to try and, you know, fight from two different uh, positions uh, because they had been split up by the area effect of these spells. And it was, uh, yeah, it was really cool. It was, it was a really, really uh, fun encounter, like in the sense that we were able to make really the, the, the space and the characters moving around felt very, you know, uh, it felt like it meant it mattered, you know, it mattered where the characters were position, uh, positioning themselves. It mattered where they were, uh, you know, uh, where they were, uh, letting their, uh, area effect spells go off and things like that. So it, um, it really showed me that you can run good, uh, you know, and I guess to clarify what I mean by set piece is that in, in kind of like the action movie sense where the, the setting, uh, plays a persisting, um, you know, a pers has a persisting effect on the narrative or on the action. You know, when you have, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, things like, I, I recently watched uh, Atomic Blonde again with my son, and there's a really good fight that uh, takes place in a guy's apartment. And the uh, the, char the character, like the main character, Charlize Theron's character, um, Lorraine, I think her character's name is, it, it makes use of a lot of cool shit in the apartment. Actually, there's two fights that take place in, the, in apartments, and both of them really feel like, you know, there's stuff that happened in that fight that couldn't have happened if it, this fight was on the street or in a parking garage or things like that. And, um, you know, that's what I mean by set piece, where, like, the the location of the tactical encounter has um, an effect on the... Um, yeah, on, on the, the mood and, and the feel of the fight. You know, and uh, that's where uh, the those particular fights—the fight that was on the bridge—because there was the persisting threat of being tossed over or dragged over. Uh, there's been um, fun tactical fights in the uh, on that bridge, uh, or rather on the bridge on the stairs, uh, for two reasons. One, there was the oh, actually three. There's the elevation that came from being higher up on the stairs. Uh, two, there was the well, actually there's four. Gosh, uh, one of them was being able to back if if the elevation. I mean, maybe this is part of the elevation, but being able to back away from the um, you know from the edge to keep yourself safe from uh, archers that really felt uh, like a persisting effect on the um, you know on the on the the fight. Um, the effect of the uh, stairs uh, making it harder because the the uh, characters going upstairs where I was treating it as difficult terrain, so it took him twice as long to go up. Uh, and uh, the um, 
the, the course there was a big crevasse or big uh, hole right in the middle. So the players had to worry about being tossed down into that hole or being pushed down in the hole. So all of those things made for a, 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 a tactical encounter that felt very, you know, very different from just fighting on, on um, you know, on the ground. And I always, when I ran 4th edition and, and when I've run uh, Pathfinder as well too, that's one of the things I love trying to do is to make for interesting places to fight that can give you different options. Like, uh, we had a really fun fight in a recent Pathfinder game. Recent as in like six months ago, I guess, but a recent one where they fought in, you know, they were on a rowboat and uh, they were trying to get uh, themselves ashore. And, um, you know, so they were, the, 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 there were things that were trying to drag them into the water and that, you know, gave a real, a really fun and unique threat and and uh, feel to that uh, particular you know a particular encounter uh so and um i like doing that because you know if you if you are going to have a tactical encounter it's good you know that that's one of the ways to make it feel like something unique as opposed to the um, you know uh, just the, the same old same old grind of just like you know f- fighting in a, on a grid or fighting in a uh, fighting on an open field you know it gives some more um, it, it gives more personality uh, to the fight. Now, in uh, a lot of times, you need um, you, you, it would be ideal to think of those things beforehand, so you can think through what those interesting encounters are going to be and and what the different options are. But I don't think you know. Um, and if, I guess if you're doing the concern there is that if you're doing that, you're not really running a, an oracular game. Uh, if you're, I mean. You can do that, but every set piece that you pre-plan, it becomes a guaranteed fight, right? And if you're doing that, then you're making some decisions for your players uh, in the same way that you do with uh, if you're designing a, um, a tactical encounter in um, a three, you know, third edition forward kind of game. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that if you are going for the trying to embrace that true, you know, emergent play kind of uh, experience that you get from old school games... Um, having those preset encounters, maybe that's going to feel a little bit like it's, um, maybe it's, it's, it's a little more railroady than what you, you want to have. But what, one way to get around that is just dream up some of the kind of set piece stuff that could happen in these different regions. And then when you do happen to roll a a random encounter, you just take advantage of that. And then you're like, all right, well, it's going to be, I rolled a random encounter while they were traveling through the underworld. Um, I've been thinking about a bridge fight, so let's make it in the bridge. You know, I rolled a random encounter of these spiders, so this is where it's going to happen. Uh, just because, you know, you're rolling, you're keeping the random encounter element of it doesn't mean you, you can't try to also make the setting for it an interesting thing. You know, it's always going to be more interesting if it happens in uh, a location where either the players can take advantage of the uh, of the terrain, and you don't need to think of what that is necessarily, because players are smart motherfuckers, and they will come up with ways to try and take advantage of that stuff. Um, and the second thing is um, the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, is that, um, yeah, I mean, it gives those random encounters more of that personality, you know? Uh, Players in old school play will always know that, you know, that random encounters were not necessarily planned, so they're not part of the ongoing, you know, story, as it were. Even if you're doing what I've talked about before, of assuming that everything that comes into play is part of the story, um, what those set piece things do is it gives those random encounters an even more interesting uh, element to it. You know, it becomes a memorable uh, 
uh, action piece, because that's what often random encounters end up being, right? Is I mean, they don't have to be fights, but they often end up being fights. But what this will do is make those random encounters feel even better. If you really want to go ahead too and 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 take a you know a further whack at at uh, pre uh, planning, put down a list of six or even four. You know, uh, if you, if you, if you can't, can only come up with four interesting set piece encounters, put down four. Use a D four. You know, when you roll your random encounter, roll your D four. So like it's um, you know if it's going to be in a uh, uh, forest, say that there's a, you know, uh, you could put down, let's see here, maybe there's a deadfall. So there's a part where part of the battle mat is, is sort of cleared off by a big tree that's fallen down. Um, so there's other ways to move around, but there is a kind of a choke point. Uh, one of them could be a depression where some of the, like, um, some of the ground has been washed away and to travel in the direction the players are going, they have to go down and then go up and maybe they're separated on each side, you know, for that. Um, Maybe there's a, um, you know, a brook uh, that reads that runs through here where it'll be uh, separating one side from the other, uh, but it's moving quite quickly. So characters have to be either very careful moving through or risk being kind of washed down river. Um, and then four will be a fourth one for it. Um, uh, oh, what if there's a, a rash causing um, or some kind of adverse you know, um, foliage uh, that's in there too, fauna that's going to be turning on your players. There you go. There's four ideas for uh, for things. You put down the one to four, um, you make your random encounter roll, uh, and then if you, there is a random encounter, you roll for what they're encountering, and then you roll for your set piece, you know, and uh, you can also add in the, um, the reaction as well too. So I think that what that is is just the set piece element of it for old school games is still... You know, you don't have to come up with a min ways of making it into a mini game. You can just use terrain and you can use um, setting elements to to give that uh, setting personality without having to delve into the like fourth edition used to do this thing where you could, especially late in the life cycle of the game, you could add in like stand on X square and get plus one to hit with radiant attacks and stand on Y square and get plus whatever to fire attacks. And like that stuff was a little, you know, that's a little too video gamey for, for what I wanted in my game. But, um, I think that, uh, there's a way of doing it without leaning too, too heavily into that sort of overly gamist element and still keep it true to, uh, uh, to a, um, you know, the play of an old school game. That's again, assuming you want that uh, old school game. Nothing wrong with having a hybrid type of, uh, of game. And maybe I'll talk, let's talk about, um, I'll talk about that in the next section. All right, now let's talk about a, uh, the combination of uh, emergent uh, play and um, story-based uh, play that I've seen in my um Legacy of the Crystal Shard campaign. So what uh, what that game has ended up being is this interesting mix of uh, of you know uh, sandbox type ish play, where in the sense the players can go where they want, and but also a very uh, heavy hand on what the uh, you know what adventures uh, that are sort of you know what what events are going on that are going to drive the players' adventures. So it really is uh, more of a you know closer to the newer. Uh, style of, of adventures, which is not surprising for something that was written for, you know, what, what would become D&D &D 5th, um, or D&D &D Next as it was at the time, and 4th uh, edition, and uh, it also had rules for 3.5. Now, the 
the thing that I, you know, this particular adventure uh, should be maybe clear about it is that there's really not, this is not really a full adventure uh, in, in the sense that um, there is, a, you know, set out encounters the way that a, a D&D adventure is typically set out. It is really more of a broad sketch of the types of things that are happening in the region at the time that, um, you know, that your characters can get involved with. While they did provide some rules for uh, for the actual encounters for each of the different editions, uh, those encounters honestly are way out of whack with what the um, what the story is telling you. Uh, you know, because uh, each of those editions is more it, not more focused, but I mean there is a um, an assumption that the the tactical encounters are balanced then each of the encounters, with the exception of the 4th edition ones, which can take advantage of the minion rules, they mostly, they, they feel like, you know, um, I was watching uh, the film The Old Guard uh, recently, and um, eh, I mean, it, it's, I, I, I've heard a lot of people say a lot of positive things about it, I was left a little cold by it, I, I, didn't, I thought the dialogue was pretty awful, uh, and I th- it, but the, th- the thing that really struck me is that it felt like a TV production uh, in the sense that there were rarely more than six people in a room at any point, you know, uh, and that just, that's sort of what a lot of um, third edition forward uh, encounters kind of feel like uh, in the sense that there is, um, there's, uh, you know, because you need to have a balanced encounter against, on, on average, four player characters, you rarely end up with the sort of sprawling encounters that you can see in, like, you know, the epic fiction that sort of uh, drives this, the, the or inspires the uh, uh, those kinds of games. Um, minion rules from 4th edition, they allow you to get around that a little bit, so you can have more things on the table that will go down fairly quickly. Uh, but you're also engaging in some pretty blatant gamist elements, and even if you're, you're, what you're doing is you're either telling the players, these are minions, you know, um, so they can properly make use of their AOE powers and whatever without uh, using them and being like, shit. Uh, or you're just letting them guess it, but I mean, whatever cho- choice you make there, you're forcing the players to engage in a gamist element that takes them out of the fiction. And more into the expressly, you know, um, because I mean, in the fiction, these these uh, characters, the non-player characters are presumably not, you know, the paper uh, tigers that the, um, that the mechanics will tell the players that they are. Um, the, you know, so I, I mean, I had to, I ended up throwing out a lot of the, those pre-planned encounters and just went with the, uh, the adventure, but it's interesting seeing the, um, some of the, the encounters are going to be, uh, either set piece or they will be, you know, prescribed combat encounters. Like, you know, if you're fighting the, the big bad, whatever, you know, in, the, I, again, I'll, I'll try and avoid some spoilers here if you haven't been, either you haven't been watching the Legacy of the Crystal Shard game or you might play in it at some point. Um, you know, there's a, a big fight with one, there's at least two bosses, three bosses, four, three bosses that you for sure kind of, um, it's, it would be very difficult to talk your way around those. Um, so you kind of have to face them. They're the kind of, like, adversary that needs to be taken down at some, you know, D&D uh, campaigns uh, or some D&D uh, adventures require. And these particular ones, you know, you, you're going to be able to design a set-piece encounter that is based on on that. But, you know, the thing I've, I've, I found 
uh, on defeating those adversaries. The thing I found uh, so interesting about running it with second is that um, on, with the heroes have only really, I think in my campaign, I've only faced one major boss so far. And that took like three tries to get to, to, uh, to defeat that adversary. And it's one of the things I think that, um, given my experience with, uh, past with, uh, you know, with other editions, with uh, fourth and with whatever, uh, with uh, third and with uh, Pathfinder, um, it's rare that you'll see, like, if characters are forced to retreat from something, um, it is, it's because something has gone terribly wrong. Like, dice results have just not been in the player's favor, or the whatever, like, it's rarely there's a, a set, there's an encounter that is set up in such a way that combat is not the, you know, the way that you're going to see this thing through. And in ours, you know, we, um, I did not know how the players were going to play it out. And, uh, so I'm getting the spoiler territory here, I suppose. Uh, skip forward to the next section if you don't want to, uh, have Icewind, the, uh, Legacy of the Crystal Shards spoiled for you, either our playthrough or the, um, you know, the, the adventure itself. But, uh, the the adversary I'm talking about is uh, last chance for spoilers. Three, two, one. Barak Hammerstone. Barak Hammerstone, the big uh, bad uh, dwarf guy who's corrupted by um, the black ice, a, a residual effect of uh, Chrysal Tirith, the crystal tower that was created by Crenshinabon, uh, the the um, uh, crystal shard, and. Um, so he's he's really a bit of a tragic character because he is just so thoroughly corrupted by that stuff. He's not really uh, a he's not really a bad guy necessarily. At least there's no, there's nothing in the adventure that tells you that this guy's a bad guy to start with. It's really a, you know everything in the adventure suggests this is just an innocent dude who is a victim of circumstance who got exposed to this stuff. Wrong place, wrong time, you know. So he. In the adventure, they say that you know it, there is a possibility of talking him out, but it's a you, you, the way that they describe it is quite interesting because you kind of have to get them, the players, in order to to try and talk their way out of this, need to work with the the drives that the uh, that the black ice is forcing on this guy, so it needs to work with his greed, or it needs to work with his anger. You know, and uh, that's not how things worked uh, for hours. It just, you know, things worked out. So there was, uh, and to be honest, it was way more interesting this way. You know, it wasn't just show up. But the way that the first fight went, uh, the guys ended up facing off against like 40 uh, heavily armored dwarves. And then they very quickly got separated across this big room. So some characters got captured. Some characters got, uh, you know, um, knocked out. Some characters uh, escaped. And then we had this sort of, Couple sessions of uh, interesting um, split party stuff, where some of the party, some of the party was trying to work to free their ally, and then also to try and defeat Barrack at the request of the proper kind of you know dwarven leader. Um, uh, so um, it was neat, you know, and I mean to not to have the players go, going in and seeing the. I didn't set it up so that it would be it would deter the players. It was just I had decided beforehand that. He's so, uh, you know, the way that the black ice is affecting him, I threw out the recommended, um, adver- you know, encounters, and I learned that pretty quickly in the uh, in the course of running this uh, campaign because it's it just doesn't, you know, uh, the 
the recommended amounts and recommended uh, encounters just don't really work with what I was trying to, what with what I was, tr- for one thing, trying to do with the game, and also with what um, second edition requires. You know, especially once uh, players get some levels in them, um, they're a lot more easily and get some better gear. They're a lot more easily able to handle the, um, you know, the bigger groups that uh, uh, that I'm, I was throwing at them as and. I mean, oh man, we also had a really, speaking of, of tactical encounters too, the, the encounter with a, a cloaker was just awesome, like so good. Uh, it was really a challenging encounter for the guys. Uh, they nearly lost an adversary or an ally at one point. Um, and yeah, so the, um, the, but the fun thing is, is that, you know, the players end up working with the, the terrain anyway, even though it's not... Uh, second edition isn't designed to work as necessarily a tactical game in the same way that like fourth is or Pathfinder two or to a degree uh, Pathfinder one and Starfinder. Um, it really does, man. It really makes for a fun, fun thing. We throw a ton of adversaries on. Like the the running fight of the guys trying to get away from that room of forty dwarves was a shit ton of fun. And um, yeah, but the reason I um, I was thinking about this is it's it's been interesting kind of I thought before that second edition you know if I wanted to run a game that had uh, more of a story focus to it I'd use like you know Pathfinder 2 or I'd use uh, D&D 5th or maybe Pathfinder 1 um, I'm finding less of that now I'm, I'm really feeling like I can get we had some really good role playing we had some really really fun tactical encounters and a lot of great set piece encounters too in um you know, in uh, second edition uh, AD and D, so I would, uh, you know, I would definitely. I, I had been thinking before that maybe I, I wouldn't run, uh, you know, say uh, Ravenloft or Spelljammer. You know, with with uh, second only because I wanted to really. I think those um, games require a very specific kind of tone that's uh, to be complemented by the, the the rules of the game, and. I, you know what? I think I can I can make it work with uh, AD and D second now. So I, I would uh, be inclined to not do that. I've also got like for for the more high powered heroic you know style of play. Um, I have uh, recently, uh, as of like today or last night, I ordered a copy of um, at the very very tail end of AD and D second's life cycle. Uh, TSR or what became I can't remember if it was under TSR's uh, watch or under Wizards of the Coast's watch. Uh, they released a series of uh, adventure products that were for at first AD and D second, and then for third edition D and D relating to Diablo to the video game Diablo. Well, the neat thing is is for the AD and D one, uh, they uh, ended up making use of kind of like feats in. Um, uh, in AD and D, by and what you would do is you would spend your weapon proficiencies slots to acquire kind of what the special abilities were. So they were even more so than what feats were in third edition, which were for the most part kind of like math stuff. Um, the these ones are closer to what like fifth edition feats are, or what uh, you know the the feats are in uh, Pathfinder Two, which is that they give you some new cool ability that other people can't do. And that's fucking awesome. Like, that's super cool. If I could find a way to, to add that in, like, I don't want feats to be in all of my games necessarily, but I think that's a pretty, 
from what I've seen, I, I need to get the actual book in my hands because I, I hate reading PDFs, but the the book itself looks like it's going to have some really good options for for introducing you know for those players who do want to have a little more customization and have some more clear tactical abilities like the the reason I wouldn't introduce it in most games is because I wouldn't um I wouldn't want the um what do you call it uh I I wouldn't want it to turn into like powers the way it is in say Pathfinder 2 or 4th edition D&D where that becomes the go-to thing or like the feat combo that you get with uh, Pathfinder and with 3rd edition 3.5 where a character has chained together a bunch of feats and class abilities so that a certain kind of attack is optimized, be that their favored weapon or whatever, so that that becomes the thing, the only thing they do. Um, I wouldn't want that, but, you know, um, I have mentioned the podcast before how much I enjoy the World of Warcraft uh, game and the setting as well, too, and there is some really, really great rules for running 5th edition uh, D&D in, um, in Azeroth, in, in the Warcraft setting. But if I could do that with 2nd, that might be pretty fucking cool. And I think that might be a step in the direction of, of figuring out how to model that properly. So I'm, I'm really excited to get that uh, as well. Let's see what kind of rules. So I guess what I'm saying is that the experience of running this with, a, uh, with more of a story-focused uh, adventure... Uh, it really has uh, convinced me that there certainly is more I could do with second edition than what I had uh, initially thought. There, I, I would want to tweak the game just a little bit for each of those uh, each of those campaigns, obviously. But I mean, um, it may be a more flexible chassis for me to keep using uh, than I had expected. So I'm uh, pretty excited about that. I guess that's probably all I got to say about. Uh, I guess, I mean, you know, one thing um, is the, the, by approaching the game more from a, you know, a story-based focus, you know, you, you, there is an argument to be made or there's an observation to be made that uh, maybe this is not quite the, you know, quote-unquote old-school way of playing because, uh, you know, it's, it's not as... Uh, open as what uh, a traditional old-school game is. Certainly not like the way a, a strict exploration-style game like Our Night Below Two Degrees like that, like uh, Bear Maze is, like any of Greg Gillespie's uh, campaigns. But another side is, it's probably closer to how most of the adventures were written for uh, second edition, you know. Um, that's not necessarily a ring endorsement for it, mind you, because the, a lot of those adventures were quite uh, railroady, particularly the uh, Dragonlance ones. Uh, but, um, you know, I mean, you don't need to run... Uh, well, first off, I guess you don't need to run it quite as, you know, preordained as some of those adventures were. Uh, and the railroading is not necessarily a bad word, you know. Like, the everything in extremes is, is going to be a problem. Everything in moderation... Is not and to a degree, um, railroading is not necessarily in the sense that uh, there's a sort of direction that players are going is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's it's become I think because of uh, bad extreme examples of it. There, the thought is is in some circles that you need to you know to properly run an old school style game, you need to have complete and 100% uh, player agency in the sense that wherever the players go, that's where the sort of emergent story comes. Uh, 
And that's completely fair if that's the way you're running a game. But I mean, uh, I guess for myself and everyone else needs to make the decision for their tables as well. I'm never, from my, whatever your prioritized interest is, you know, whatever your, your goal is with that particular campaign, with that uh, game, you just need to bear that in mind to help decide what is the right way of structuring that stuff. For me, it's going to be fun at the table. I'll be all and end all. I am not interested uh, in trying to specifically recapture a specific style of play or to try and, um, you know, stay true to certain kind of, you know, principles of the game. My overriding concern is always run the best and most fun game that I think I can run. And that's it. Uh, every, you know, what you want to do with your table is going to drive the, the decision as to whether a lot of these concessions to a more story-focused and character-focused uh, style of play, whether that is going to be something that is right for your table and for your players. You know, uh, this sort of hybrid approach that I run is probably, uh, well, not probably, it is closer to sort of the traditional 5e uh, and modern style of play where, the, you know, there's there are ways to keep players uh, or player characters safe, like particularly with the Astonishing Fortune rules that I use. But, you know, my characters also start with uh, generally higher stats than what the other characters do. So, um, so I already take some steps in that direction. But, you know, um, for yourself, you just got to figure out what the, the right balance is um, for, you know, for your own table and for yourself, what you're going to have the most fun with. And for me, like, that's, that's really... I'm really, really enjoying the type of game that we're playing right now with the, with the Night Below game and the other one. And I would very, be very interested in seeing how that fits with other styles of play. You know, with uh, the, uh, what do you call with other styles of, of settings. And particularly if, you know, if you want something that's got a little more modern with characters with more powers right out of the gate. That uh, those Diablo rules might actually be a neat way of modeling that, especially for like I got a, a one um, player uh, who adamantly refuses to play um, uh, an old school game because he hates the idea, loves playing wizards, and he hates the idea of wizards not having cantrips. Now that he's had them in fourth edition and in uh, um, fifth edition, where he's got damaging cantrips at scale. Uh, I know they're called, you know, uh, dailies in, uh, or not dailies, they're at wills in uh, fourth edition, but I think you understand what my meaning is. Um, the Diablo approach might be a way of uh, mitigating that, you know, of uh, giving that particular player something. If all players have it and all NPCs have access to those as well, too, that might be a way, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And it certainly isn't something I would want. I, for myself, I particularly enjoy this style of play. This is exactly the tone and the, you know, the degree of capability and the degree of um, challenge, I guess, or the, the characters are, uh, I feel, in, in these games, a little more, a little closer to, uh, you know, quote-unquote real people, I guess, as opposed to, which is a silly thing to say about an abstractist uh, RPG, I realize, but a little closer to that than the, uh, the characters in, um, you know, in 5th uh, edition, but... In any event, that's a, a long aside. The long and the short of it is, is that I'm having a shit ton of fun running this game in with second edition for Legacy of the Crystal Shard, even in a very, very kind of more story-focused kind of way. And I would uh, definitely, I'm looking forward to trying it uh, 
with more settings and more t styles of play, particularly the, the uh, gothic horror and kind of space opera stuff of uh, Ravenloft and uh, Spelljammer, uh, you know, respectively. I think it'll be interesting to see how well it does, uh, you know, simulating those. But in any event, those are my thoughts on the combination of story play with uh, more of an old school uh, game. Okay, um, I did start recording uh, more for this episode, but I kind of lost the thread and got off topic. So what I think I'm going to do is to avoid doing what I've done for the last couple of months, which is start recording something and then delete it uh, and then forget to upload it. I'm going to end this session, this session, this uh, episode here. So for those listening at home, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I hope you found some interesting things to uh, think about and uh, hopefully to talk about. If you, want to, uh, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding us, please do not hesitate to shoot me a voicemail on Anchor. Uh, you can shoot me an email. My email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. Or you can uh, shoot me a, uh, or reach me on uh, Twitter at Dungeon Musings. You can also find me on the Dungeon Musings Discord server, a link to which you can find on any of the videos uh, that have been posted in the last six months or so on the Dungeon Musings YouTube uh, channel as well. So... Um, I hope that if you listen to this contemporaneous to the uh, current crisis that I find myself in, um, I hope this finds you healthy, safe, and weathering the current crisis as well as can be expected. Until we talk again, happy gaming.